Hi, Allison. Hi, Sarah. All right, so week three of our coronavirus lockdown here in France, mm-hmm. another podcast in confinement um, recorded at opposite ends of Paris. Uh, how are things with you? Well, I must admit, having initially hardly left the house at all, uh, for the last week I've been popping out for about half an hour each day just for a walk to clear my head, get something like some fresh air. Mm, yeah, here here we've been also trying to to get out a bit. We're by the canal, so it's a little more space to walk around. But um, but yeah, you, you definitely kind of feel a bit nervous because, you know, you don't want to cross too many people. And there are a lot of police around as well. Yeah, um, and fair enough. Apparently, they've been handing out quite a lot of uh, fines. The government's managed to rake in about 40 million, I think, from people who have not had their certificates uh, when they went out for their essential activities, whether it's food shopping or going to the pharmacy or having a a limited amount of exercise. Um, One thing that's still going on, Sarah, is this 8 p.m., people going out onto their balconies and um, supporting hospital staff who are doing such an amazing job. It allows people to come together a bit. Although I have to say, I, I went out the other evening at 8 p.m. and there were an awful lot of closed shutters and no lights in many flats, which does suggest that a lot of people have left Paris for the countryside. I think that I saw a statistic, something like one or one and a half million people have actually left the city. I have to say in my neighborhood, there are definitely more people around. And this 8 p.m. applause from our windows does allow us to pop our heads out and chat with the neighbors. So obviously that's the lockdown. All this, of course, is for health reasons because hospitals in and around Paris are starting to see a massive increase in in patients with coronavirus complications. And of course, in the east of France, they're really overwhelmed. Um, They've taken now to actually transferring patients, airlifting them, but also um, commandeering TGVs, high-speed trains to bring patients from these saturated hospitals to places where there are fewer patients and more beds. And of course, it's great to save lives. No one would question that. But it has caused a bit of controversy the way that it's being done. Some doctors in recent days have been decrying the fact that, you know, medical teams are being taken out of action basically to um, to accompany the transportation of these relatively few patients, also costing a huge amount of money. And some of them saying it would be better to just transport the respiratory equipment from those underused hospitals to the areas where it's really needed. It's true, yeah. Why transport the patients when you can transport the material? Um, it turns out we haven't reached the peak of this so-called curve of, of cases here in France. And the prime minister this week was actually quite alarmist, saying really the worst is still come. And France isn't in a great position. Um, Officially, it's now behind Italy, Spain and the US in terms of registered deaths, but ahead of China. Those death figures only count those people who've died in hospitals. There are increasingly reports of problems in nursing homes and medicalized nursing homes where, you know, older patients are actually dying from this virus and they're not really being counted in the official statistics or at least the ones that are being released uh, to the public right now. And actually, a f- very few people are being tested here in France, unlike other countries. You only really get a test if you show up at the hospital with an extreme case. So thousands of people diagnosed by their family doctors, some of them on the phone or via video consultations. But of course, they are not in the official statistics. Mm-hmm. And we learned this week that a former colleague of ours, Fabien Janik Charbonnel, he was at home sick with symptoms. So we decided to check in and see how it works for someone who isn't in the official system. 
Hi, Fabian. Hi, Sarah. You got infected with this coronavirus.、Um, tell us what happened. When did you realize what was happening to you? I kind of started realizing what was going on about ten days ago, when I lost all sense of taste and smell. That's what happened. It was so all of a sudden.、Surreal. All of a sudden, just in two hours, it was completely gone. It's really like someone switched off something in your brain, and you really can't cannot taste anything. It's it's not like when you have a cold. Really, I just couldn't taste anything. So what happened? So you said, okay, that's weird. But did you first think I have the coronavirus? No, I was like, oh, that's really strange. And then I had read that it could happen for some people. I guess I was in the denial at first,、uh, but then I kind of started feeling. Pretty bad over the weekends, you know, body aches, no fever, and on the Monday, so three days after the first symptom, I called my GP. Was told me, well, I'm 99% sure it's the coronavirus. So, did they actually suggest that you go and try and get tested? I did ask a question, and she was like,、uh, first, you should stay home. And the truth is that she doesn't even have access to testing anyway. I think it's limited to hospitals, and I've heard of people with mild symptoms like me going to a hospital and being sent back home and without any kind of tests. And so officially, then you had contact with the GP. Did did you call like a special number to be counted or get some official advice, or was it just stay home and take care of yourself? It's a bit of both, actually. So、uh, the advice was go and buy、uh, paracetamol. That was it for the med- medical advice. It was stay home for fourteen days. But she also got me、uh, registered onto something called Covidum, which is run by the、um, Parisian hospitals. And basically, every morning I get an email and a text message telling me to go online, and I have to answer to a few questions. It's like, do you have a fever? Stuff like、uh, your、um, heartbeat rate and stuff like that. If something is out of the ordinary, my GP will get an alert, and also the.、Um, Emergency services. So if it's really wrong, like you say you can't breathe, you'll get a call immediately from the emergency services. If it's more something like, oh, I have a fever, then like last week my GP called me during the afternoon. She was like, are you okay? I saw an alert on the on the thing. It allows them, I think, to have number of people or like suspe- suspected cases, and also if anything goes wrong, it allows them, I think, to act pretty quickly and to you know send like a, an ambulance if if needs be. Was there any attempt to figure out? Well, I mean, on you, on a personal level, I imagine you tried to figure out where you got this from.、Mm-hmm. Um, but was there any official attempt to sort of, you know, step back and be like, okay, where did the chain of transmission happen?、Uh, she didn't, and that was kind of frustrating. But I, I understand why she didn't because no one, there's not enough tests. But on a personal level, I was kind of scrambling my head for for two or three days trying to figure out. Oh my God, where did I get this? But it's so contagious. There is no way to know. I mean, the highest possibility, I guess, would have been during groceries I did on the Monday, and I probably touched something and then touched my face. But who knows, really? So, so the French government does plan. I mean, they're officially they're going to be te- doing massive testing after our confinement period is over. Would it have reassured you? Would you have liked to be tested? And I mean, is that a good enough reason, even just for reassuring? Like, would would testing have help, sort of helped any of this process for you? I mean, for a few days, I guess I was still in denial, but I was kind of 
I'm like, oh, what if, what if everybody's wrong and I didn't get it? You know, I guess it would be nice to just have a written confirmation of what it is, but I don't think it changes anything. The loss of taste and smell are pretty telling, I think. It's just, if we could, we should be doing much, you know, a lot more testing. It, it seems kind of crazy that I'm like a suspected case and that we are all locked indoors because of that virus and I'm not being tested. What's been the mental toll? I mean, clearly we've talked about symptoms and not feeling well, but when you self-isolate like that, how does that make you feel? It was not easy at first, just being I'm on my own in Paris. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends and family members who are checking in quite regularly. And in a way, the, um, that COVID dumb thing, the, the questions I have every morning are kind of reassuring. I'm like, oh, I'm not completely on my own. There's like a doctor somewhere who, who thinks of me in a way. I feel like the quarantine, because of course, when she, she handed me out the uh, diagnosis, she was like, you should stay home. And then I was like, yeah, but I'm also on my own. So what do I do if I need to do groceries? And I think this, this is maybe what was lacking. I had to go out to the pharmacy and I had to go out to the supermarket once. And uh, thank God, because I have ma- like face mask that I bought in Japan six months ago for no reason. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, I mean, it's worth men- reminding people, right? There's a terrible shortage of face masks yeah. here in France. This is the thing. So I did not buy them in France. I just had like five that were sitting at my place because I thought it would be funny to buy them in Japan. Look who's laughing now. But anyway, it was a bit lacking on that side. I was like, uh, but is it okay if I just go once to the pharmacy? She was like, uh, if you really have to, uh, okay. I wish that, for example, uh, even if I'm only a suspected case, they could have organized something like groceries being delivered. I guess they don't have enough time to prepare, but that would have been nice, for example. There was no real like following up on whether or not you are isolating yourself. It was all basically on your honor. Yeah, it feels a bit like, like if I want to go out, no, no one is going to stop me. And I mean, and I've talked to, because again, uh, my symptoms are so mild. It's like, you feel like you can do stuff, but you probably, con- you are probably contagious. So I'm just wondering, Fabian, what happens now? I mean, you're going to stay inside for 14 days and then what? No, that's the question, isn't it? It's uh, I should be able to go out again on Saturday, which is great. But at the same time, I was reading an article saying that some people are still contagious after that. So there's really a lot of unanswered questions. And I wish we we had the answers because I don't want, I obviously don't want to infect anyone while going out. I'll probably go out this uh, weekend. I, I I can't wait, actually. Well, Fabian, thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you too, guys. Let's take a bit of a break from coronavirus now with a bit of history. 175 years ago today, so the 2nd of April, 1845, the first photo of the sun was taken. Mm. And it was done by two French physicists and friends, Louis Fizeau and Léon Foucault. Now, Sarah, people had been taking photos since the late 1820s, but Fizeau and Foucault used different technology. They made a daguerreotype. Uh, that's an ancestor of the camera. It consisted of a sheet of silver-plated copper, uh, which they then treated with chemicals to make its surface light-sensitive. 
They then exposed it to a scene and treated it with different chemicals to stop the exposure. All right. So this this picture of the sun.、Uh, what does it look like? Well, the photo is just over twelve centimeters wide. Of course, it's black and white, so it just looks like a a grey globe.、Um, but you can see the star's very well defined sharp edge. And then there are a handful of sunspots on it, and that was what was so striking all those years ago, because for the first time people saw those spots, and they're quite big. Each one is about as wide as Jupiter,、um, and after all, we're talking about a star that measures 1.4 million kilometers across. All right. So on the level of photography, maybe not the most attractive picture, but interesting for science, I guess.、Um, was this the earliest known photo of any part of space outside of the Earth? No, the Moon had already been photographed round about five years previously. We're not sure of the exact date, and because there have been many attempts with varying results, but a British chemist called John Draper claimed that he had done it in March 1840. Now it might seem a bit surprising that the Moon was photographed before the Sun, because of course the Sun's so much. Brighter, but if you bear in mind that back in 1845 they did have very limited technology, well, it was a lot easier to take photos needing a long exposure, which is good for when there isn't much light, rather than one that's just a fraction of a second.、Mm. And it's incredible to think now what we can do in terms of observing the solar system all by ourselves. I mean, you just need an adapter to connect your smartphone to a telescope, and then you're able to study the moving surface of the sun all from the comfort of your living room. All right, so now we're going to go back into the coronavirus epidemic,、um, but but of course there's the health element of it, but there's also a big thing of the economic fallout of all of this. Yeah, we're starting to see shops and some hotels boarded up at, re- at least where I live, and the French government is loaning a lot of money to stop some of these businesses going bankrupt. Their charges are being deferred, for example. Yeah, small businesses really are feeling the brunt of this and are really worried. And farmers,、um, France, remember, is a very agriculture-based country, and it is spring; it's harvest season. There have been really concerns of having enough workers to to pick what's being ripe and also selling things.、Um, for example, asparagus is coming into season. Yeah, this is this very delicate、uh, green vegetable, real delicacy. In fact,、um, it tends to be long and green, but the most popular ones in France are actually. A bit It's thicker and white, and the season for growing asparagus is really short, isn't it?、Mm-hmm. And so usually you find these in restaurants or markets, but all this stuff is closed now. So what do you do? I mean, are farmers to leave them to rot? The government has asked supermarkets to focus on buying French products as much as possible to actually help out farmers.、Um, but as it turns out, that's not ideal either.、Um, I found this out when I spoke to an asparagus farmer. His name is Thibault de Villepierre. His family farm grows corn and wheat and soy. Which are typical crops for their area near Toulouse in the south of France.、Um, but for the last 25 years, they've also been growing asparagus. They have about six hectares, which is an average size、uh, for this crop, and it, it's quite special. L'asperge c'est le premier légume du printemps. Donc tous les restaurateurs nous appellent. He says here it's the first vegetable of the spring. As soon as asparagus shows up, restaurants call because they're sick of cooking winter root vegetables.、Um, one of the issues with the lockdown has been a lack of labor to pick crops in fields.、Um, De Villepierre has not had this problem. He said、um, for the last three years they've had a Spanish family coming to pick asparagus. It's parents with their three sons and daughter-in-law, and they arrived this year at the beginning of March before the lockdown. 
around and are staying on the farm. So that hasn't been an issue. Although there is one concern that one of the um, sons is about to become a father and they are wondering if he'll be able to get back to Spain for the birth of his child. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, but he's been saying also that people have been calling the farm a lot to, to offer their help. Um, the government did launch a campaign encouraging out-of-work people to go help in the fields. We receive calls every day, he says. Yeah, so for him, no labor shortages then. What about actually selling the asparagus once it's been picked? Well, that's the problem. Um, he says he usually sells 70% of his crops in regional outdoor markets. He also sells to restaurants. Il y a 15 jours, on a débuté la saison avec les restaurateurs. Il y a 15 jours, on les a perdus du jour au lendemain. Two weeks ago, they started the season, he says, with restaurants. And two weeks ago, that shut down from one day to the next. Yeah, that was when the prime minister announced that all non-essential businesses were to shut down. Yeah, and so then they started selling at markets pretty much that same weekend. Donc, forte baisse sur le sur les marchés. He says here they saw from the get-go a drop in market sales as people were starting to become aware of the need to stay inside. Et une semaine après, plus de marché. And then a week later, so last weekend, outdoor markets also shuttered as well. So complete panic there. Right at the start of the harvest, um, they couldn't really stop and leave the asparagus to rot. On souffle un grand coup, on a les bras, on baisse les bras, mais on se dit non, on peut pas. We took a deep breath, he says, and had to figure something out. Um, it's about this season, but also about years of preparation, because it turns out asparagus takes about three years to mature. You plant a root the first year, the second year, then you have a, a little harvest, and it's only the third season where you can really harvest them properly. They're very delicate. They grow really fast, like up to 15 centimeters overnight, apparently. So you <laughs> wow. have to be really reactive. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a really short, intense harvest season, really from March through May. Yeah, it's really short, just three months. So no restaurants or markets to sell to. What's he doing? Well, um, I, was, I was surprised at how relatively serene he was. Um, he did say that, that as farmers, they're used to dealing and reacting to unforeseen problems, you know, like weird weather and that kind of thing. He says there's never a typical year, although this is completely atypical and really caught them off guard. Um, so they've been spending the last 10 days desperately looking for new distribution routes. The finance minister this week called on grocery stores to prioritize French products. You know, supply chains are drying up from, from Spain and elsewhere. Um, for De Villepierre, this is a great idea. He'd like to hear that kind of thing every day, not just in a crisis period. And he said he immediately started getting calls from stores for the first time ever, actually. Ça fait 25 ans qu'on fait l'asperge. We've been growing asparagus for 25 years. This is the first time we've ever been contacted by local supermarkets, he says. Um, some are honest, he said, but many have been proposing absurdly low prices. He says here one director offered between 2 and 3 euros a kilo for the crop, which is about three times less than their production costs. And then the person who was on the phone said he was offering these two or three euros a kilo to help him. He says it's demoralizing. Now, of course, that's an anecdote. It's hard to know exactly what's going on. But, but he says he's heard this from other producers, that it, he finds that it's a systemic problem. Grocery stores are, he thinks, trying to profit off of this situation. And this whole made in France push for him is just a bunch of marketing. So at the end of the day, is he selling to supermarkets or not? He actually decided not to. Instead, he's focusing on local consumers. Um, in normal times, he does some direct sales. Um, there's a small shop on the farm. People come and buy their asparagus. Over the past week, he 
started um, teaming up with other farmers in the region, and they've been putting together these sort of boxes or collections of fruits and vegetables, including his asparagus, that people can order ahead of time and then drive over and pick them up. On a mis toutes les mesures uh, de protection de santé. Uh, so he says they put security place. measures in place, of course, for them and their clients. Masks. They wash their hands. They keep distances between clients. Il y a une grande solidarité côté agriculteurs. He says there's solidarity um, amongst farmers, but also from clients. People really are looking to consume locally, it turns out. So it took about a week to really figure this out. But surprisingly, he thinks that if things continue this way, he'll actually be able to sell his entire harvest this year with no problem. Wow. So that is maybe strangely, but definitely a positive outcome of all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, new clients. I guess the question is, will it last? And I keep thinking also that this works really well when you're in a region that does produce things to sell. I mean, I'm thinking the Alps, you know, what kind of fruits and vegetables do you have there? Yeah, not so much. They've got plenty of good cheese, though. That's true. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I have noticed even here in Paris, it's not exactly an agricultural bastion. Um, local shops have seen a boom in business. You know, those who are sourcing from France, there really does seem to be a demand. I'm, I've noticed that there's a lot being written about this boost in buying local as a result of the coronavirus. And it's not just for practical reasons. It seems like the virus has drawn attention to maybe the downside to globalization. Do people really still want to carry on having their food transported around the world like that? Maybe it's time to start genuinely buying more locally. Yeah, so we'll have to see once this confinement ends and figuring out exactly how the economy puts itself back together in one way or the other, you know, how will we be eating in France after this? That's it for today. Um, we're going to try to get another episode out in the next two weeks. You can subscribe to Spotlight on France in your favorite podcast app to get the episode as soon as it's ready. And remember, there are now 36 episodes for you to dig into. You can get them on the apps or on rfienglish.com. And we're always happy to hear from you. Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.